Welcome, everyone, to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host with the most opinions about pop culture, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much more. We have a great show for you this week, as always. Stephen Garrett will be here to talk about Jurassic World Dominion, the unfortunate sixth movie in the Jurassic Park series and also about david cronenberg's crimes of the future a terrific piece of speculative science fiction that is in some theaters now also ann holiday is going to be here book and film globe contributor to talk about her new book the small potato manifesto out from microcosm publishing and we're going to start with dan stahl a new contributor to book and film globe he's going to talk to us about fire island a new movie on Hulu that is being put out to celebrate Pride Month, and we'll be right back to proudly talk to Dan Stahl. It is a truth universally acknowledged that Jane Austen is versatile. So begins Dan Stahl's review in Book and Film Globe this week of Fire Island, a new adaptation of sorts of Pride and Prejudice. It's a uh, a gay vacation, a Pride and Prejudice set on a gay vacation island, which is uh, something we all uh, were had on our 2022 pop culture bingo card. And Dan is here today to talk about Fire Island with me. Hello, Dan. Hi, Neil. You had you had uh, sort of fond feelings toward Fire Island. I, I and I know you messaged me. And this is the first time you've written for the site. You messaged me enthusiastically saying, "I want to write about Fire Island." You have a you have a connection with it. Oh yeah, um, Fire Island and I go back a while. I think I was in my mid twenties the first time I went out there, and that first trip was a very like innocent journey during the off season. It was just for a weekend. I think it rained the whole time. So all of the shit that goes down in the fire Island movie, I saw none of that. I was just like at a house on the beach when it finally stopped raining and very chill. But then on return visits, I did the things I went to the underwear party I met guys. I was living some version of the life that you see in the Fire Island movie. Right. And it's uh, the life depicted in the Fire Island movie is a life of, you know, free flowing parties and brunches and, you know, hookups. Right. Sort of. For sure. Yeah. You know, Fire Island is, is a longstanding gay mecca. It was in fact, it was in the news uh, in 2021 because there were after the vaccines came out, there was a big um COVID outbreak that was traced to some kind of big Fire Island party. That was actually the Boston version of Fire Island. That was in Provincetown, but very similar vibe. It could have been Fire Island just as easily. Right. But okay, it's the same basic vibe, which isn't to blame. You know, everyone has big parties and big parties tend to spread COVID. So it's it's not like it, yeah. that sort of was in the mindset, um, the public mindset. But this, but this movie is like, it's like kind of a, it's a sweet it's a sweet romance, basically, uh, centered around two best friends, who uh, w- one of whom is a virgin. 
Is that right? Not clear that he's a virgin, but we know that he has not had a boyfriend um, and he's 30 years old. So he's definitely, he gives off kind of like, if not virgin vibes, at least kind of like nebbish, like self-doubting, sexually insecure vibes. And he's played by Bowen Yang from Saturday Night Live. Yes, who's excellent. So, um, you know, you had a lot of good things to say about this. There's a lot of sort of quippy comedy in, in this, right? There's like like sort of wry social observations because the two guys who were at, in the leads, they were like working as waiters and they have a lot of um, criticisms of their clientele, of their sort of bourgeois clientele. Yeah, they're very like, I mean, I think one thing this movie does really well is turn a critical eye on the people that these two leads meet, um, many of whom are white, wealthy, muscular Adonises um, who have a lot of like the social and sexual cachet on the island. But I think like, you know, Joel Kim Booster, who wrote this script, is also good at like turning this social observation onto himself and his own group of friends. So like nobody is really safe from getting made fun of at some point. Right. Well, yeah. And Joel Kim Booster is also Asian. So like the, the two main characters are sort of nerdy gay Asian guys. I would say definitely true for Bowen's character, Howie. I think there's another element to Booster's character, Noah, which is that like, he has a body, like, very toned, like, you can see his abs. He's got a body that's, like, more in line with the, um, like, hyper-white set that comes in for criticism. So I think one thing this movie does well is actually, like, blur some of those boundaries and, and complicate the idea that, you know, you can just, like, put certain people in a category of, like, maybe person of color, like, sexually undesirable or, like, white and hot and rich. Like, there are characters, Noah and Will is another, who, who sort of, like, cross over a bit. Right, and there are also some white, hot, rich characters who have, uh, who get a somewhat sympathetic portrayal? Oh, yeah, I think so. I think Will is a, an example of, of one of those. Right. So, uh, you know, it's Pride Month and Fire Island is, you know, heavily being heavily featured uh, by Hulu as like, you know, it's it's sort of major uh, queer content, you know, basically. And, uh, you know, I feel like there have been a lot of different adaptations of Pride and Prejudice. I mean, obviously, uh, Clueless, but, but there was also what Bride and Prejudice. Uh, you mentioned that. And then there have been there have been several other uh, attempts to sort of adapt the sort of framework of Pride and Prejudice to um different cultures. And how do you think this film falls into that matrix? I think this film did it cleverly in that, you know, it's not being marketed as a, a pride and prejudice adaptation. I will just confess that I did not even realize this was a version of pride and prejudice until I was maybe like 20 or 30 minutes of the way into the movie. And I was like, Huh, you know, like this character sort of reminds me of Bingley and um, this other one kind of reminds me of Jane Bennett. And then I sort of like started thinking more about it and saw all these other parallels. And I, I think one reason Fire Island is such good fodder for a Pride and Prejudice adaptation is because in Jane Austen's novels, you have these very like rigid, almost cast. And so... Um, that same kind of hierarchy exists, not as explicitly, um, but it's definitely present with um, its own social codes in 
the Fire Island movie. And so so that helps the parallel. So these codes translate universally uh, across uh, all cultures. But it, but it, it's, you know, interesting to me to see how they translate. You know, obviously, like, I'm not, um, you know, I'm not a single gay man or even a married gay man. I'm not, a, you know, Fire Island is not my milieu, right? But, like, uh-huh. it's fascinating to me to, like, uh, to see how these things apply to other scenes. And um, Pride and Prejudice is, like, basically the... Um, the template for all modern rom-coms. Yeah, it's so interesting. I think, you know, like you were saying, you know, you're not a gay man who like goes to Fire Island every summer. Like neither of us are Victorian ladies trying to net like a rich English man who makes 10,000 a year. So it's, I think there is something about, yes, this like fusion of wit and love and conquering these uh, social boundaries that is just endlessly, timelessly appealing. All right. So let's pivot real quick. And I don't know if you followed it, but there was a controversy on Twitter, which is the only place there are controversies anymore, <laughs> about Fire Island this week. A writer named Hannah Rosen tweeted out that she was upset that Fire Island failed the Bechdel test. You know, yeah, the, the Bechdel test is, you know, where Alice, the writer, uh, the graphic novelist, yeah. Alison Bechdel, gauges works of literature or what or or tv or movies by whether or not there are two women in them talking about something other than a man and yeah i I would say she was widely roasted for criticizing fire island about this but but you know she she brought it up you know and and it's been on the debate so where where do you stand in that the bechdel testness of fire island yes um i have no doubt it fails the bechdel test like honestly i can't think of more than one female character in the movie who there's even like a chance to have. That's Margaret Cho. Yes, exactly. Margaret Cho, who's sort of like the house mom to this group of friends, um, Noah and Howie and their quote unquote sisters. But I guess sort of the way I think about it as a critic is I remember learning about like the three questions that uh, the German writer Goethe says like a critic should ask going into reviewing any work of art. The first of which is, what is this play, movie, book, whatever it might be, trying to accomplish? And, you know, I think the Bechdel test is looking at something very specific that is not really within like the orbit of what Fire Island is trying to do. Like the movie, it's it's showing this like community of mostly gay men. So from an aesthetic point of view, I don't really think it makes sense. Or from a narrative point of view, even from a kind of like sociological point of view, if it's, it's really trying to represent like the Pines community, which is not to say that there aren't women who go to the Pines, um, you know, I've stayed uh, with uh, one in my time, but I think it's just, it's sort of like maybe this thing, like the Bechdel test isn't necessarily something that should be applied to every movie. So I think Fire Island gets a pass here. Yeah. And, you know, Alison Bechdel herself said, I didn't mean that it should be applied to every work of art. It really like, it's relevant in certain scenarios, but you know, a movie about, um, you know, gay, gay male dating culture. What do you expect? Yeah. Anyway, uh, Fire Island is a great way to uh, celebrate Pride Month through uh, TV and film, and it is airing on Hulu now. Dan Stahl wrote about it in Book and Film Globe. And thank you so much for uh, taking time out from your your endless summer to talk to me. 
My pleasure, Neil. It was fun. Yes, you like potato, and I like potato. You like tomato, I like tomato. Potato, potato, tomato, tomato. Let's call the whole thing off. But oh, if we call the whole thing off, then we must part. We have a special guest on the podcast this week. Well, she's been on the podcast before, but we have her on this week for a special reason. Anne Holiday, Book and Film Globe contributor, is here, and she has written a book called Creative Not Famous, The Small Potato Manifesto, published by Microcosm Publications. And she's here to talk to me about being a small potato. Hello. Hi, Neil. Hey, so, um, you know, you and I have, uh, we've, traveled in concentric circles in life for many, many years. We went to the same university. We were both involved in the avant-garde theater scene in Chicago in the 90s, which at this point sounds like Paris in the 20s. Um, <laughs> we were both uh, you parenting bloggers of sorts, you know, sort of alternative parenting people. You, you, you have a Well, I never had a blog. I had a zine and people mistook it as a parenting zine just because I wrote about my life. And there was a period in my life where I had small children attached at the hip. It was part of the same scene, though, of, of like people writing about their children as part of their lives, sort of artsy type people. And then and now, of course, we both are involved with the fabulous book and film globe. But I, and what all what all ties together is that these have all been a small potato kind of operations. Well, I mean, I, I guess I've been a, like a medium potato at times, but I'm, I'm I'm definitely in the small potato camp these days. So we have we've had a lot sort of similar paths in some ways, but maybe um, with the book out. You know, you are now the sort of the small potato guru. Maybe you could define for us a little bit what that means. Uh, to my way of thinking, a small potato, you are that if you meet somebody and they say, hey, what do you do? And you're like, oh, I'm a filmmaker or I'm a writer. I'm a musician. And they say, wow, that's so cool. Have you done anything I might have heard of? And you <laughs> name your best known work and you just get a total blank from them. And I think that's true yeah. for most people people in the arts. There are very few of us who strike it so big that we become a household name. And the ones who do become household names often don't last as household names very long, a decade or so further on. You know, there are people who don't know who Gilda Radner was. Yeah, I know there was a, there was a question on Jeopardy about Gilda Radner. No one, no one got it. I was, I was shocked. Ugh. But yeah I, know, yeah, I know what you mean. Like I've always said, like, you know, I was a household name in a few thousand households. 15 years ago. Yeah, right. And, and one of our contributors, um, our Sikoriak, who is a cartoonist and, you know, very well known, I think, but he said, well, I'm, I don't consider myself a small potato, but my genre is very small potatoes. So by definition, I become one. Well, exactly. So, you know, there is a way to be successful and still not be famous, like you said here, like that, that you don't have to, you know, be um, a best-selling novelist, a chart-topping musician, uh, you know, a Tony Award-winning actor in order to um, continue to make art. Right. And I think that social media has really amplified feelings of uh, despair or uh, a depressing impulse to compare yourself to others as if we're all running a race and there are only a limited number of prizes to be had. 
it's so easy to uh, lose sight of your own accomplishments and your own fulfillment as an artist just by the fact that you're making stuff, you're doing it. But then you see somebody else doing it to more acclaim or sounds like they're making more money doing it. And then you beat yourself up over that. So this is this book is an attempt to get people to stop beating themselves up about that and realize that there is a community of small potatoes and that we can build that community and make it bigger. Right. And you're not really talking about like TikTok and Instagram influencers or like, you know, or like Facebook live chefs here in this book. You know, you're 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 speaking with artists and cartoonists and performance artists and people who are involved in, I wouldn't say the traditional arts, but who are, you know, who are more sort of, you know, we're Gen Xers. We're we're from a more analog age in a way. And I feel like um, those skills and those uh, ways of expressing yourself have been um, de-emphasized in the culture. Yeah, I think that that's true. I mean, it, it's. I wonder what it would have been like if I had had those tools at my disposal when I was young, you know, if I had been a digital native. I think it's great. You can make a film. You can make a web series. You can make little movies, whatever. You can publish your own book. You can record your own music and get it out in front of an audience of strangers in a way that just wasn't possible 20 years ago. It, it, it is easier, uh, but at the same time, you're competing with a lot more. Well, first of all, there's a lot, there's a lot more people, yeah. and there's also, and you're also competing with a lot more people for everyone's attention. Yeah. So everybody in this book, it's like they're doing a lot more than just slapping up a ring light and editing their own stuff, which, I, admittedly, that takes work and initiative too. But uh, all these people are doing it old school or have done it old school for. A long, long time. But I wouldn't say it's only a book for them. Like, for instance, you know, the the woman who eliminated me on Jeopardy and now makes her living making NFT art, right? Oh, yeah. But she's, but she's still got like an indie creator's attitude. It's just that she's doing it in a digital realm. This is a book for people who are making uh, visual art or painting or making zines. But I think what you're talking about here can apply to um, – anybody who's trying to live a creative life. Yeah, I think so. And um, the impulse for writing this book came about when I was doing a lot of off-off-Broadway theater pre-pandemic, and I would look out in the house, and you can definitely see from the stage in these small theaters who's there, who comes, who comes and supports you, who is from your small community, maybe even a stranger or somebody who you've had minimal contact with online, but when they roll up to support your effort, it feels really good. And then in my opinion, it's on you to return the favor by going out and supporting their thing, yeah. whether or not you have that much interest in it. Yeah. It, me it means something to go to an art opening. Like tonight, my wife and I are going to see a friend of ours. He He's our age ish, but he is, uh, he's a rapper and he's, he's doing like a happy hour rap show at a local bar. And I'm like, well, we got to support, he supports us. We support him, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And good luck to him. I hope he has a nice full house of people who are all rooting for him. Yeah, he will. He will. He's got his, he's got his posse. Uh, and, you know, and you know, he's a good rapper. It's just, it's just, it's just a very kind of DIY attitude. And I wanted to talk about that. There are, a lot of the book is quotes. You you compile quotes from, I don't know, 20 plus contributors uh, who are talking about their lives as as creative people. And, uh, you know, it's organized into different if, different sections and, and um, 
you know, there's obviously some original stuff in there as well. And you do this chart in sort of in the middle of the book where you list the uh, admirable traits of the small potato and the deplorable traits of the small potato. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I thought that was really, you know, it sums it up a lot. And DIY sensibility is the first admirable trait of the small potato, the uh, the um, sensibility that if no, if you, if no one is going to um, publish you or do it for you, then you do it yourself. Yeah. And maybe even if they are, you know, uh, I have published, uh, this is my eighth book and, you know, I've worked with big names and I've worked with specialty presses and I've worked with little presses and then I have my own zine. So there are joys to be had in doing it yourself. Um, I think in every artistic field and one of it is really the freedom of expression that you get when you're doing it yourself. It's what, what the Minutemen called jamming econo. Yeah. <laughs> Such a Gen X reference. Uh, but the, some of the other things, some of the other admirable traits you mentioned are willingness to pitch in, non-begrudging acceptance of their small potatohood, could give fuck all about what others say, tenacity, a strong work ethic, creating art for its own sake, not for money or fame. I won't read all of them, but it kind of goes along those lines, you know, then you have to be willing to do it with a sense of humor without expecting anything in return. Yeah. Other than making the art itself. I agree. I, I want to point out that um, that chart is sourced from um, things that the 38 contributors told me. And right across from all these admirable traits that you're mentioning, we came up with a bunch of deplorable traits, which I think if we're being honest, any artist can relate to anger, jealousy, ego, shit talking, giving up. I mean, those are the things that we're all guilty of at some point or another. And I think most of us would like to minimize those uh, impulses, you know, it's a real Eeyore sort of proposition when you give in to that. Well, yeah, and, and you mentioned entitlement, uh, div- an attitude of divaness, uh, work workaholism. That's not a problem I particularly su- su- suffer. <laughs> yeah, I don't have that, that problem. I'm like, I look at a lot of these um, pricing their work obnoxiously high, not really. I, I, look, <laughs> I look at some of these and I think, well, that's not me. But then I look at other of them um, and I'm like, yeah. Right, I can I can uh, fear of insignificance, sure. Social climbing, maybe churning out the same stuff over and over. No, that that's not me. Uh, but entitlement, you know that these are all the things that they um you know they they taught me in um I didn't go to Alcoholics Anonymous and marijuana anonymous. These are some of the negative character traits that uh, you try to get rid of when uh, you get sober. And uh, I think I think it applies to art as well. Yeah, I don't know that there's ever any real getting rid of them, but it is you can make a choice not to dwell in them and to recognize those feelings when they're coming up. And it's like, you know what, that now's the time to shut the lid of the laptop and go for a walk or something, something to shake myself out of it. You can minimize it. You can't. You, no, no one's nobody's perfect. Um, right. There are manifestos. Uh, there's not one small potato manifesto. There are. There are uh, several small potato manifestos um, sprinkled. Oh, no, it's one. It grows throughout. So by the time you hit the second to last page, then we've finally built the whole. Oh, the whole manifesto. I'm wondering, do you have a, uh, I would like to hear it. I don't know how long it would take for you to read. but Well, uh, I'll tell you, I'll read it and you can just edit it out. if it's Oh, yeah, we have, that. We, we have the technology. Let's, let's hear the small potato manifesto as long as I got you on the line. <laughs> All right, let me declaim. The Small Potato Manifesto. We relish the freedom of our relative smallness without hope of wealth. The only time we get it wrong is when we avoid doing it. 
We choose when to bail, aren't scared to fail, and cross the finish line with a mighty yawp. Our loins are girded for the long haul. We lift others up and welcome support from all quarters. Fie on those who would ration our metaphors. Our grit distinguishes us from the big bananas. Our participation forges strong communities. We are still learning. We will strive to get the word out. Our work belongs to the ages. The Small Potato Manifesto, Anne Holiday, frequent Book and Film Globe contributor, longtime small potato and creative person. Thank you so much for showing up. And uh, well, I, I guess um, we, I, we should ask, where, where should people buy this? Uh, people can buy this wherever they like to buy books. If your independent bookseller doesn't stock it, I would be extremely obliged if you would request a copy from them. But you can get it on Amazon. You can get it direct from uh, Microcosm Publishing. You can get it on Barnes & Noble. You can get it wherever you want to get it. All right. Thank you so much. Keep on doing it. I'll keep doing it, man. Have a yeah, good me day. Me too. I got no choice. I got nothing else to do. Yeah. No Franchise Ever Dies is a continuing theme on our little podcast here. And, um, you know, sometimes franchises do it well, like with Top Gun Maverick. And then you have the Jurassic World, the Jurassic Park franchise, which has mercifully released its sixth and hopefully final uh, installment this week. Uh, Jurassic World Dominion is in theaters now, and Stephen Garrett saw it and is here to talk to me about it. Hello. Hello. I hope you're staying safe from all those dinosaurs that are flying all over Manhattan. You know, it just made me see, remember that Larry Cohen movie, Q? Yeah. About Quetzalcoatl, the Aztec serpent living in the Chrysler building. Right. He made a whole movie out of that one monster. This is a ton of monsters and they don't even bother showing many of them. Right. And, you know, and, and what shocked me from your, I, I, I hate these movies. I mean, I love the original Jurassic Park um, obviously, you know, that's a, a all-time uh, classic American uh, thriller, big bloated <laughs> Hollywood. Thriller. I mean, that's a great movie, but you know, and, but I, uh, I, 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 I kind of disagree. I, I'm mixed you, on it. But but Jurassic Park, come on, dude. I, Jurassic Park has some amazing scenes and is otherwise a trash movie, but go it's ahead. It's a trash movie, but the dinosaurs, you got to look at it from an eight-year-old boy's point of view. But then from <laughs> there, from there, they, there they take it and they turn this, you know, they turn it into this this world full of completely uncompelling characters and ridiculous situations. And you know, Jurassic World was somewhat popular, but I, I hated that movie. The Chris Pratt's motorcycle riding mechanic and yeah. the Bryce Dallas Howard running around the island in heels, and it was all you know. And, and they're trying to make us care about these these characters when all we really want to see are dinosaurs. And what shocked me about this your review of this movie is that they kind of keep them all, like, contained on an island. Yeah, I mean, uh, so, hmm, all right, to be fair, uh, there are apparently dinosaurs on Malta. Fine. And also a, a, a pterosaur, which I guess is not a pterodactyl anymore. Maybe they're two different things, but uh, nesting in, in downtown Manhattan. And, and then there's, like, a stampede of some other uh, kind of bovine dinosaurs in the Sierra Nevada mountains, which is where 
we see Chris Pratt lassoing one of them with his horse. It, it's just absurd. And I, I don't understand if your whole premise is you end the last movie with this sort of like the gates have fallen, the monsters are loose, the world is doomed. And then you actually see, oh, no, no, the, not the, uh, a few dozen people a year died by or are killed by dinosaurs. They're not, they're not that big a deal. A few, a few dozen people a year, more people than that die a year in their bathtubs. Yeah, exactly. And, and that there's some weird company that's bought all that bought the rights to dinosaurs. What? So basically, like dinosaurs are no big, no bigger a threat to humanity than, say, monkeypox. <laughs> uh, yeah, basic. I mean, it, it's just preposterous and bizarre. Also, they they released some weird trailer or five minute preview or prologue, I think they called it, to this movie last summer or no, last fall that showed a T Rex attacking a, a drive-in theater. Yeah, and it looked at like uh, like okay, this is going to be awesome. It's going to be you know in, like, the ni- in the 1950s. What? I know. I I mean, then we get which is the dinosaur, right? Like what what is going on in this weird pastiche? But um, you know, it kind of reminded me of the end of the Lost World, Jurassic Park, where you know they bring a a dinosaur back to San Diego, and it's running around. You know, cars are driving into blockbusters, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it was very 90s. But um, this is a ripe premise. We're going to have dinosaurs attacking, like living among us. How does that happen? Oh, no, no, no. Don't worry about any of that. We're going to hide them in the Dolomite Mountains. And then we're going to basically do what we always do, which is have some bullshit secret lab where you've got to get something. And then, you know, all the protocols fail and the dinosaurs are loose and you have to run away from the dinosaurs. So there's a lot of running away from dinosaurs. Lazy. Lazy. So lazy. And then they pack in all the stars as though we give a shit about Sam Neill and Laura Dern you know, maybe kissing, maybe not. Like, why? Or are they still having their will they, won't they? It's like uh, Sam and Diane from Cheers at this point. In 20, <laughs> it might as well. 20, uh, <laughs> in the, in the old age home, you know? Uh, yeah, exactly. It would be Sam and Diane, like, in their 70s, basically. Yeah. Uh, will, will, will Dr. Ellie Sackler and Dr. whatever his, that, Alan Grant, uh, the paleontologist Alan Grant, are they going to get it on? And, 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 dude, and it's also two and a half hours long, where you're just like... There's both too much going on and not enough going on. Jeff Goldblum remains the most uh, delightful part of this whole thing because he kind of calls uh, bullshit on it all. And he even there's one like wink, wink line where he's like, oh, Jurassic World. I hated that. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. That's always his role. Yeah. But, you know, it's funny. Like they made him the centerpiece of the second Jurassic Park movie, which was it sounds to me like the worst one until now. Although I, I didn't see the last Jurassic World movie. That, that one looked like a. Like, like a hunk of trash as well. It's all an excuse just to run around with dinosaurs. Dinosaurs are cool, but it's like, why not have them rampage down the Vegas Strip? That'd be good. That'd be great. Or like, uh, you know, a, a, attack Disney World. <laughs> <laughs> so many things are like domesticated, awesome. you know, working like the Flintstones, man, where they have a saber right. tiger pet. You know, why not? Or when, when you come home from work, your dinosaur jumps all over you and licks your face. <laughs> Anything but what they have. What they have right now is just a rerun, a rehash. of. There's not one original idea in the whole thing, and it's just not fun. What if your dinosaur were a vacuum cleaner? <laughs> exactly. Boy, the Flintstones is a show. It's a good show. The first few seasons, you know, I kind of got, you know, when they introduced the Martian guy. Yabba, dabba, doo. Yeah, or the um, the Pebbles and Bam Bam band. Those were Oh, that's right. Show. That jumped the shark. 
that wasn't so good. But yeah, but the early concept, the, the prehistoric honeymooners uh, thing was was pretty good. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, you know, you're you're playing the Jurassic Park music, which also I think is totally overrated as a theme song. But also, you should be playing the Flintstones music if you're going to really talk about this movie. Oh, all right. Or just, I, you know, um... let's just watch the Flintstones. It's just a better evocation of, uh, and probably more accurate depiction of dinosaurs and humans living together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that, that. That's what it was like back in the day. Speaking of original ideas, let's pivot and talk about a movie that actually. To me, it does contain uh, some original ideas, although it doesn't have nearly as wide a release. Uh, and that is uh, David Cronenberg's new film, Crimes of the Future. You saw it at Con. I saw it. Uh, this seems to be a, 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 a trend. You see a movie in France, and I go to the Alamo Draft House Lake Line in, in, in <laughs> Northwest Austin, um, just as glamorous. But uh, you know, I'm I'm actually kind of a, a big fan of Crimes of the Future. I thought it was uh, extremely uh, interesting and surprisingly sweet movie considering it contains endless shots of people slicing one another with scalpels. I know, but they're so happy about it, aren't they? They're, they're like super into it and kind of aroused, especially Kristen Stewart. Kristen Stewart can't get enough of it. She's kind of like this sexy Renfield, right? She's like, Ooh. she's very sexy. She's very sexy in it, but she doesn't actually get sliced open herself. Yeah. They say surgery is the new sex and there's a lot of that going on, but the, what what's interesting about it is, what it's advertised as and what's sort of on the surface isn't what it's actually about. It's actually about human beings evolving to uh, consume industrial waste. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, that, that's what was surprising. It wasn't actually a movie about sexual perversion. No. That was just, that was, that was just kind of a hipster cover up for what is actually going on. And all the art people are busy, like performing surgery on one another and mutating their faces while they're kind of ignoring the fact that biology has provided us a solution to our um, our plastics problem, <laughs> exactly, we're adapting, adapt or die. This is the next uh, evolution. And I thought it was very clever. And you know, it's it's you know, it's not a crimes of the future. Well, it's not a perfect movie. I mean, the, some of the supporting characters are very flat. Some of the writing is kind of artsy and stiff. The the world building is you know perhaps not entirely consistent. But, uh, you know, there's some really cool, weird details like Viggo Mortensen plays this performance artist who uh, is evolving. But his his artsy response to his evolution is to have his partner, played by Lea Seydoux, perform public surgeries on him. (laughs) So stupid. Why would he do that? And meanwhile, he's like suffering horribly and has to sleep in these weird in this weird mutated walnut bed. And, um, and eat in the breakfast chair, the breakfast, the breakfast chair. chair. He sits yeah. in this breakfaster chair that's shaped like kind of like a human spine and like wiggles him all around so he can consume this like baby food, which is the only thing his body can tolerate. When in reality, all his body wants to do is eat plastic. <laughs> and he's so happy at the end. Spoiler alert. Like, yeah, it all works I know. out. We kind of give, kind of give away the it ending It all works there, out yeah. well or not, you know, depending on your point of view. But that's the thing. I think that's what's so beautiful about the movie is that it's about how humans resist change. You know, even when our biology is trying to help us, we're fighting against it because we feel or we're stuck on how things should be or how things were, you know. And this is very much about you cannot escape biology. Biology will always, as you know, hey, life finds a way, right? Jurassic Park. Right. You know. And, and I think there's something kind of wonderful about that. Stop resisting. Stop forcing your own preconceptions of what the world should be on ourselves because it's literally killing us. We have to allow ourselves to actually 
be alert to the changes around us and adapt uh, accordingly. Well, eventually the forces that are resisting this are just going to, they're going to lose. You get the sense that evolution is always wins. It's a really profoundly bizarre art movie. And I find, I found it um, compared to, let's say another profound, a bizarre art movie, men, which we talked about on a previous episode of this, you know, it has, it has a similar kind of weird gross out vibe, yeah. but that movie didn't really seem to be about much of anything at the end of the day. Um, or at least you, at least you, nothing that you didn't, you, you didn't need like a codex to try to interpret. Whereas this movie, like, yeah, it made you think. <laughs> well, you know what I loved about Crimes of the Future, and I see this rarely in movies, that it really is a movie about ideas. And, you know, it is one scene after the other of characters explaining what's happening to other characters. You know, it's just nonstop exposition done in a kind of dry, witty, sometimes silly way. But you know, early on, I thought to myself, God, the acting is really stilted and odd. There's something dissonant about this. There's something a little soulless. And then I realized, like, it doesn't matter at all. Like, I'm so I got so swept up in the ideas that they were expressing about what was happening. Talk about this compared to men, right? Like men was a metaphor. You put it so well. And I'm sorry, I'm, I'm misquoting you. How did you say it in your review? This is a movie in search of a metaphor or something. Or something like that. So it's probably, probably was much funnier than that. No, oh, yeah, of course. And uh, no, but you were right. You're absolutely right. And this is nothing but this is a fully realized film as metaphor um, and is so rich because of it. And it's such an interesting vision of the future, too, because there's no tech. I mean, there's some tech. There's like mostly the tech is about like trying to help people like adapt to these changes in their bodies. But there's no cell phones. There's no there's no video. You know, everything's very analog. There's no I didn't I can't remember seeing a single car. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of walking around. <laughs> walking around some, like, what's, what appears to be some abandoned French Mediterranean port city. <laughs> it was filmed in Greece, we should say. It was filmed in Greece. So oh, it was. Which, well, you know, okay. for tax reasons, you know. Yeah, I, I got a break. It was, but it was, it was very decayed Mediterranean uh, urban, and it's the future, and people are videotaping performance art, but that seems to be their only activity other than, like, trying to figure out how to eat without dying. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be an economy of any sort. The economy at is all. entirely based around well, it's it's based around like this uh, the, the, this evolutionary change. And uh, is it realistic? No, <laughs> but is, is it an interesting sci-fi premise? I, I I would say yeah. You know, so it's like I was surprised at how much I liked it. Crimes of the Future is yeah. in some select art houses now. You know, if you live in a city of, of, of let's say more than six hundred thousand people, you might be able to find it. I know. What a shame. And Neon does such a great job of really getting movies out uh, into the world and out into the states and smaller towns as well as big towns. And, you know, God bless the Alma Draft House. You know, I, I love that that basically is where you're going to see all the stuff that, you know, is important in terms of what movies are people are talking about. Yeah. You know? And it and exists uh, alongside Jurassic World Dominion, which is what people are actually going to be seeing this weekend, <laughs> which has no interesting ideas in it at all. Is not a movie about ideas. No. It's as brainless as it can get. No, but this is a podcast about ideas. And remember, Stephen, what doesn't kill you, like in Crimes of the Future, makes you stronger. Body is reality. Body is reality. <laughs> what doesn't kill you makes you Thanks, Stephen, for talking to me about David Cronenberg's Crimes of the Future. 
and Jurassic World Dominion. Also, thanks to Anne Holiday for talking to me about her terrific new book, The Small Potato Manifesto, put out by Microcosm Publishing. And thanks to Dan Stahl for stopping by to chat about Fire Island now on Hulu. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. This is the Book and Film Globe podcast. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. We are your one-stop shop for everything that's going on in the culture. Please stay safe. Don't eat too much plastic unless your body is evolving to do so. We will talk to you Original production. Most podcasts are awful. Most news is noise. What you need in your ears is real news. Narrated. You need Audio Hopper. Human narrations of the most compelling news, culture, and entertainment stories. You choose the topics and the publications. Audio Hopper gives you a commercial-free straight read of the story. Read by real voice actors, not annoying computer voice simulators. Get a variety of points of view and real news. Audio Hopper. Real news narrated. In the App Store.